Thank you. Good morning. We, uh, <clears throat> some of you know, I um, uh, last year uh, around this time I was preparing to go to Israel. Had the uh, opportunity to go with uh, several uh, of my colleagues in the area, and uh, you know, it, it, you you never know who you're going to meet there. Um, <clears throat> the one one morning we were in the lobby of the hotel waiting to you know get gathered up to go wherever we were going that day and uh, I was sitting next to a, a, a gentleman turned out he was a, you know a, a dentist from New Jersey and uh, th- there you go <clears throat> I uh, you know so you know I just sort of making conversation as I was waiting for everybody and and uh, you know I said sorry are you here visiting family is this a uh, you know, he had a, a yarmulke on, so I, you know, I figured he was there for some sort of religious reason. He says, well, yeah, actually, uh, my wife and I were here uh, bringing my mother-in-law to uh, see Jerusalem. She had never seen it, uh, and it was her desire to see Jerusalem uh, before she died. Uh, the, uh, the tragic part is, is uh, she passed away last night, and we were going to go into the city today. So she was able to see the city from a distance uh, from the uh, the hotel balcony, but but uh, sadly she wasn't able to uh, actually make it into the city. Um, she, he said, but you know, and you know, I expressed my condolences. He said, you know, don't tell me about tell me what you're what you're doing here. So I told him about the trip, and he said, oh, so you know, your clergy, this must be very meaningful for you. And I and I said, you know, what's interesting is probably the most meaningful experiences that I had had in in Israel involved the places where Jesus lived rather than the places where he died. Up, up in the Galilee, and by the way, we're planning to do a trip in January of 2014, so start saving your pennies. But, uh, you know, up in the Galilee, if, if you could Photoshop out the power lines, basically that's what it looked like 2,000 years ago, right? The, like you, when we came down this, the, the switchbacks on the hill above the lake, and there are people out there fishing on the lake. I mean, that, that's, that's what the biblical landscape was, uh, and I said, you know, it was, it was really, you know, just, it, it, it was striking for me to think this is, these are the hills that Jesus and his, and his friends roamed around on. Uh, I said, you know, Jerusalem, yeah, a lot of important things happen there. But, but when you go into the church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example, you know, where the, the tomb of Jesus is supposed to be, I said, for one thing, you know, it, everything's been built up. Uh, there have been churches built on top of churches on top of churches. You know, nobody's quite sure uh, with a very few exceptions, nobody qu- is quite sure that they have the right place. So, you know, when a tour guide says, and this is where, you know, Jesus was crucified, the real, you know, really what they mean is here or somewhere in this zip code, you know, somewhere in this neighborhood, something like here. You're, we're, we're, we're pretty close, but, but it's very hard to say this is the exact spot where Jesus would have stood. I said, so, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, knowing where Jesus died and where he, you know, rose from the dead is really important to me, but, you know, we just, we kind of can't know that. I said, plus, the church itself is a zoo. You've got people trying to cut line, you know, really. I mean, you had people literally trying to cut in line in order to, you know, reverence the place where Jesus was buried, and there's something just kind of wrong about that. Uh, I said, you know, obviously, you know, um, you know, knowing that this is sort of nearly the place where it happened, then, then uh, you know, that's, that's meaningful. And as we're talking, a, a rabbi came in, and, uh, and he, he walks up to the, the dentist. He says, Mr. Goldberg. And says, yeah, I'm Goldberg. How can I help you? And the rabbi says, well, 
Sir, um, I, I'm very sorry for your loss, but uh, I have some news that may be of some comfort to you. Um, your, uh, your mother-in-law is a direct descendant of a very uh, famous rabbi. Actually, I'm in charge of the school uh, that he founded, uh, and, and we have a, a small women's cemetery uh, that is uh, open to direct female descendants of, of our master and the rabbis, uh, the, the dentists. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that, but we're actually, I'm waiting for my wife to come down. We're going to take her body uh, from the morgue and, and, and go uh, fly home to Jersey. And the rabbi says, sir, I, uh, maybe you don't understand. This is, it's an extraordinary opportunity to be buried here in Jerusalem. I've, you know, I've had prime ministers want to bury their mothers in the cemetery. I've had to tell them no. I've had international stars who have offered to make very generous donations to our schools so that they could be buried here when they die, and I've had to tell them, no, this is, this is an, an extraordinary honor. Uh, and the, the gentleman says, well, Rabbi, I really, I, I mean no offense, and uh, I appreciate the offer, but uh, Reverend Poling here was telling me that there was somebody who was buried here in Jerusalem and came back to life three days later, and I simply can't take that risk. <laughs> Thanks, I'll be here all week. <laughs> the really cool part, I, I've, uh, the, the folks at Beth DeFilla, Rabbi Wolberg's uh, shul, uh, have, have had me come in for the last uh, few weeks and talk about evangelicalism. And uh, I just love the fact that I could start off with the same joke there on Wednesday night and here on Sunday morning. The, uh, the fact is, resurrection is pretty darn important to our faith. We read in chapter 15 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, after Paul says, I want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken your stand, by which gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And this language indicates that Paul is sharing with the Corinthians something that wasn't what he had made up, but this is a common confession of the church that was already well in place, was already familiar to them. He's reminding them of something that everybody knows. They may well have said it during their, during their uh, services every week, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he then appeared to various people who can attest to this. Most of them are still around, Paul says. A few have died, but most of these people are still around. If you doubt it, go ask them. This really happened. Just this morning, we had a brief communion service for the folks who were serving with the kids. And uh, in the middle of that, we say, Therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This kind of thing goes way, way back to the very earliest days of the church before these letters got written, before the Gospels ended up being produced in the forms that we have them. And many scholars believe that the beginning of Romans, what we've been hanging out in for these last few weeks, is probably also uh, has echoes of this kind of a, of a basic formulation of what our faith is. Paul says that uh, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, a devoted slave, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his uh, flesh was 
from the seed of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God or designated the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact that Jesus died, that he rose again, and that all this was according to the scriptures seems to be very, very basic to the faith that we profess and that was originally being taught and developed at the time that Paul is writing these things. So in 1 Corinthians 15, after he goes on and talks about the people to whom Jesus appeared and talks about his own identity as somebody who used to persecute the church and is now a servant of Christ's body, he says, Now, whether it's I or they, the other people, I don't care. This is what we preach. This is what you believe. This is the basic stuff. And he says, now look, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. If it's preached, and it is, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how on earth can there be some of you saying that he wasn't? If it's preached that Christ was raised from the dead, if this is part of the core of our message, if this is some of the most basic stuff for us to understand, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, how can some of you be saying that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead? I mean, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if dead people can't come back, then not even Christ has been raised, right? If nobody can come back from the dead, obviously, then Jesus couldn't come back from the dead. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, if he is still in that tomb, then our preaching is useless. It doesn't say our preaching is maybe a less optimal religious option. No, what we're doing is a complete waste of time, and so, for that matter, is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses. If we're telling you that Jesus was raised from the dead, and in fact he wasn't because nobody can be raised from the dead, then we're lying because we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But obviously, if in fact the dead aren't raised, then he didn't do that. If the dead can't be raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either, which would be a problem, Paul says, because if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died or in Christ, they're toast. If Christ hasn't been raised, you're hosed, they're hosed, and I'm wasting my time. And if only for this life, we have hope in Christ. For all the benefits that come to us from living in Christ now. But if this is all there is to it, Paul says, we are the most pathetic people on earth. Probably says we are to be pitied above all men in your translation. No, we are the most pathetic people walking the earth. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. Resurrection seems to be very, very important to Paul. And he goes on and says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We 
proclaim this when we say the Nicene Creed together, as we will when we take communion later this morning. The church has always, from the very, very earliest days of the earliest followers of Jesus, who are still trying to wrap their heads around what had happened and what that meant, resurrection has always been part of the story. That's part of the core of our faith. But there are two places in the church today where you find resurrection not getting the attention it deserves. One, of course, is in churches in the liberal tradition. Back in the 19th century or so, you had a phenomenon where people encountered the reality of science, the reality of higher criticism of Scripture. And they said, well, obviously, and again, it's not like this hadn't been thought up before by the Corinthians 1,800 years later. They said, well, obviously people can't come back from the dead, right? I mean, people die. You've seen this happen. Have you ever seen them come back? Right? All, all the people buried out here, unless they're the ones breaking into the church, their, their bodies are still there. Any fool knows this. This is, this is not like something that folks figured out later on. Certainly at the time of the, of the New Testament, people knew. When people die, they stay dead. And so people would read the Bible and they'd say, well, the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, obviously we know he can't have done that, so it must mean something else. Maybe it means that his disciples had a profound experience of his presence with him later on. Right? Like you, you may hear people say in, in the, you know, when somebody passes away, you know, well, I'm sure their spirit will be with you. Or so, you know, and you're thinking, okay, that's, that's nice. But if, if the writers of the New Testament had wanted to say that Jesus' followers had a profound experience of his presence, they could have said that. If they had wanted to say, well, Jesus' followers lived after his pattern and taught the things that he taught, and so, in a sense, it was like he was still there. They could have said that, but they didn't. They said he was resurrected. Specifically, he was resurrected from the dead. Here in verse 4 of Romans 1. By his resurrection from the dead, it should not be unclear what the writers of the New Testament were trying to say. And so the folks in the liberal tradition said, yes, we see that's clearly, they thought, obviously, that Jesus had died and rose again, and obviously they were wrong. So maybe somebody's making up stories. So we just need to understand that since that can't happen, something else must have happened. That's one way of dealing with something that you find in Scripture that you don't like or that doesn't make sense to you, is you just reject it. In response, of course, to this movement in theology... You had evangelicals dig in their heels and say, no, when it says that Jesus rose from the dead, that means he rose from the dead. And so when we say he rose from the dead, we mean he rose from the dead. And we're not sure we can explain this very well, but we think that's what happened. This seems to be important for the apostles to tell us, so yes, we're, we're going to say yes, he, he rose from the dead. But it's interesting that in the way that tradition has expressed itself today in modern day, evangelicalism, you don't necessarily hear so much about resurrection. 
Let me show you Exhibit A, which is the four spiritual laws. Anybody remember the four spiritual laws? You may have heard of these, right? The first spiritual law is number one, as Rick told us, right? First spiritual law, that God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. The second, that you are sinful and utterly hosed. The third, that Jesus died so that you could be restored to him. And the fourth, that you can then live a new life in him if you commit yourself to following him, right? Anything about resurrection in there? give you another egregious example. If you don't mind throwing, Jeremy, the lyrics to a song that many of us used to sing, but you may have noticed we don't sing here. <clears throat> Lord, I lift your name on high, a big favorite because you can transition roughly 40% of all the popular songs out there into this song. Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. I mean, the language is kind of pathetic, but it, this is fine so far. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. One big problem there is that, wait, back one. One big problem there is that when it says my debt to pay, you could read that as my dead to pay if you're not listening very carefully. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Is there anything missing here? Yeah. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, never mind all the stuff at the end of most of the Gospels, never mind the stuff at the beginning of Acts, never mind 1 Corinthians 15. Cross to the grave, grave to the sky. Go in peace. No. The resurrection thing is pretty darn important. We can't let it go. We can't let it go, for one, because it's a vindication of Jesus. Right? You may recall the story when we were in John's Gospel, chapter 2. This is where, you know, sweet, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, comes along in his white bathrobe. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he sat down and he told them all he was very disappointed in them. It made him very sad that they were doing what they were doing. He would like it very much for them to stop. Is that what he did? Not in my Bible. So he made a whip out of cords. And the gentle, meek, pacifist Jesus drove them all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop occupying the temple. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, the Jewish leaders then responded to him, so where do you get off doing this? I mean, technically it's what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this, but where do you get off is probably the sense. Jesus answered them, destroy this house and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it took us 46 years to build this thing. It's not even done yet. And you're going to raise it in three days? And I did. When I, went, I did actually go to Israel. I did not meet a dentist named Goldberg at the Inball Hotel. But I did go to Israel, and I did see there are some really impressively large blocks of stone when you go there. I mean, I think they, they think they figured out how they got them there, but for a long time they really weren't sure. But see, the temple he had spoken of was his what? 
his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed that scripture that Je- uh, and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus said he was coming back, didn't he? Right? We have in the other Gospels. You know, he started telling his disciples what was going to happen. He was going to die and then he was going to be raised again. It didn't make any sense to them. It certainly didn't make sense to the Jewish leaders when he said, look, destroy this temple. I'll build it up again in three days. But that's what he said. That's what he said was going to happen. And when he rose from the dead, that was proof that what he was saying was real. No? So Jesus' resurrection is a vindication of Jesus in his own words. But it's also a vindication of God because Jesus, of course, was on a mission from God, like the Blues Brothers, doing what God had called him to do, dying a sacrificial death, trusting that God would then be resurrecting him. Jesus on the cross died trusting that God would redeem him, would vindicate him. That's why, by the way, I think, and someday I may get to find out, but I think that's why on the cross Jesus is starting to recite Psalm 22, which starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? But at the end of that psalm, it's a story of vindication. At the end of that psalm, he says that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is not a depressive psalm. This is, there are some psalms that kind of start out sad and end worse. This is not one of those. This starts off with a person saying, Oh, Lord, where, why are you so far from me? Why have you forsaken me? But it ends with a note of confidence that God's going to vindicate his servant. And so we read in Ephesians in chapter 1, Paul says to his friends in Ephesus, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power, that incomparably great power, Paul says, that is the exact same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Does that leave any exceptions? That power is the same as the mighty strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We get the same idea in Hebrews, beginning of the letter to the Hebrews in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And so this was the fulfillment of what God was promising here in Psalm 2. Listen to this. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers band together against Yahweh and against his anointed ones, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one who is enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Again, everybody who has the idea that God is this sort of gentle Santa Claus kind of guy patting everybody on the head. This is God laughing at his enemies, right? Right? Imagine Terrell Suggs with Ben Roethlisberger on the ground, sacked. I hope we don't have to just imagine that. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Who might that king be? Good. I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Who might that be about? Yeah. Ask me and I will make the nations, of, nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You, gentle Jesus, meek and mild in your white bathrobe and your Swedish beard, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So therefore, you kings... Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you and your ways be destroyed. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you and your ways be destroyed, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. When we take communion together, we are taking refuge in him. We are affirming that his just wrath could and should be poured out on us. But that instead, Jesus has taken that upon himself for our sake. 
Because when you hear these basic kernel formulations of the gospel, they talk about Jesus' death and resurrection according to the scriptures. But you also hear about how he died for our sins. But the fact that he was raised from the dead is a vindication of what he said. It's a vindication of the God who sent him and who raised him from the dead. It backs up both the promises and the threats that God makes. So kiss the son lest he be angry and you and your ways be destroyed. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Will you stand up with me as we recite the creed together? I think this may be the first Sunday for some of the kids who are here that were taking communion. You're welcome to join us, or if you don't think this is a, something you're ready for, you can stay where you are. But uh, we'll all come up and take the elements and then bring them back to our seats, and then we'll uh, partake of them together. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Say that again. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.